Welcome to Distrust and Disparities, Dismantling Black Health Disparities podcast. We examine health disparities that disproportionately affect Black women and Black families. In addition, we amplify organizations and individuals working to dismantle racist health practices and systems to improve health outcomes for marginalized communities. I'm your host, Jasmine Moore, a registered nurse, and I'm joined by my good friend and co-host, Camille White. I'm always thinking about clinical care is an entryway, but it is not the main impact. And so I like to say, yes, you can deliver clinical care to a lot more people through these partnerships, but that's only the tip of the iceberg. In this episode, we interview Dr. Omolara Uemadimo, a Black physician, researcher, and professor with nearly 20 years in pediatrics, the co-founder of Strong Children Wellness, an integrated health practice network for marginalized children and families in New York City, and the founder of Melanin and Medicine, a health equity consultancy helping Black, Indigenous, and people of color health practitioners to have funding to sustain their health justice work. Welcome back to another episode of Distrust and Disparities. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're excited to record today's episode because we have an amazing guest with us today. We have been looking forward to this conversation. We discuss a variety of health disparities and systemic issues on the show. History has shown us that those in power are committed to keeping things the same, no matter how many people are left behind or harmed in the process. It can be very daunting to try to figure out how to push back against the systems and inequalities, or even to start your own business to tackle these issues. Today, we have with us Dr. Omalar Thomas Uwemedimo, a Black physician, researcher, social entrepreneur, wife, and mother who is the CEO of a health practice for marginalized children and a health equity consultant, working with BIPOC practitioners to scale their health justice programs. And I'll start by reading a quote by Dr. Omalara. The thing to know about the healthcare spaces that I and so many other BIPOC clinicians who have left jobs to build practices do so not to replicate what exists. Diversity and inclusion that requires assimilation will never be a path towards justice. We are here to create relationships that serve as second chances to amend the trust and safety that is so often broken. We work so hard because we aren't just creating the health encounter that our patients deserve, but the care that our parents, families, and loved ones never received, but should have. So welcome, Dr. Omolara. We're so excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm super excited. And you guys do quick work because I think we just posted that recently. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we're constantly like researching and tweaking and just going over like the outline. And I saw that quote and I was like, oh, I love that. That kind of like is the central theme of like the questions and the topics that we want to cover on the show today. So. 
And we'll start with an icebreaker that we ask our guests that come on the show. We want to start by asking you about your first encounter with a medical injustice or health disparity. It could be something you or someone close to you experienced or something you've read about that really stuck with you. Yeah, I think, you know, whenever I think about health, a lot of people think through kind of a clinical lens or think about the encounter. Um, but honestly, the first, my first interaction with, I would say, just just injustice is really stems from my um my background as a Nigerian second generation immigrant and traveling abroad and seeing the situations that my cousins or even just people in Nigeria would have to go through in order to access healthcare um and seeing how different it was just because of the places that we live that didn't sit right that was probably at 7 years old we're on a trip and so it just, I think, catapulted me to really think about how we could, how that can be changed, honestly. So I would say that was probably the time period when justice started to um, come into my purview. So having like that global lens and global perspective really influenced you and how you look at the healthcare system. Totally. Yeah. I think it's really important, especially as I would say as Black people, to remember, you know, we exist in this diaspora and that it, and regardless of in the U.S. where, you know, slavery specifically, you know, was this entity that, that took over our, our being in Africa, colonization continued to do the same thing, right? Of just the white supremacy lens. And so I think we have that tie and I think the idea of just injustice and hierarchy in health per- permeates throughout all of the African diaspora. So I always like to have that lens. And we want to take a little bit of time just to talk about your career in medicine and what led you to what you're doing now. And you have over 20 years of experience as a board certified pediatrician. What inspired you to go into pediatrics as your specialty? Yeah, so actually next year will be year 20. Um, but in terms of my clinical experience, yeah, it's been over 20 years. I would say that pediatrics, uh, I really enjoyed my pediatrician. <laughs> and that was the, that was the biggest thing. I, my pediatrician, I didn't know in the 1980s that this black woman who was my pediatrician was such an anomaly. Um, since only 2% of, um, 2% of physicians are, um, black women. And so what I realized was that I just love the intimacy of being a child and going to this place and having someone who was paying complete attention to me and the ability to have that relationship. So I think that, you know, probably shaped my interest in pediatrics. And then when I actually went to medical school and got a you know, a taste of all of the specialties. I was like, nothing compares. You get to play, you get to have fun, you get to also be shaded a lot by kids. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is like, okay, you gotta have thick skin, but it's so, so good. It's such a good experience. Yes, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and I think people that work with kids, it 
is a true passion because it is fun, but it can also be difficult as well. Work working with kids because young children, like some of the things that they face or, you know, what their parents are dealing with, it can be hard to deal with some of the problems. You're like, why should a child have to face this? Why are they going through certain issues? Because say their parents don't have like money or income. So, you know, I commend like um, pediatricians and those um, nurses and just individuals that work with kids, teachers too, as well. So it's a special calling and you guys deal with a lot. Yeah, definitely. And I know part of your career you spent working globally. Can you um, tell our audience about that experience as well? Yeah. So as I said, um, my experiences and my introduction to working to being in Sub-Saharan Africa started when I was younger through just personal trips. Um, however, over time, what transpired is the fact that I really saw, you know, a lot of the injustices and disparities that we see here in the U.S. magnified in sub-Saharan Africa due to the extreme level of poverty, as we know, due to extraction and exploitation of colonizers within um, sub-Saharan Africa. And in that, that made me, that fostered me to actually during even, I think my first trip was when I was like 20, um, when during medical school, when I left and went to Kenya. And I think for those of us who are steeped in global health, it's like once it starts, you can't stop. You just are pulled into there's so many opportunities to make a difference. And so over that time, that allowed for me to have more and more experiences to go for it. That was a three month experience, then six month experience, and then continuing that through medical school and having to kind of um work around the schedule that was pretty harrowing to be able to have time to go abroad. And so all of that fostered by the end of my residency and my training for me to make the decision to say, you know what, I love working in the U.S., but I think where I'm needed as a pediatrician is right now inside of Sub-Saharan Africa. And so that led me to actually my first job was um, in Malawi after residency and living there and working on scaling up pediatric HIV care in um, Malawi because there were adults who were getting treatment, but children were kind of being ignored and were mm-hmm. dying. And so ultimately they needed more pediatricians and the presence of us, even even a group of us as pediatricians, I think like catapulted the amount of pediatricians in the country by hundreds of percent just because of the dearth and the shortage of pediatricians, which we don't think as specialists here, but there it is definitely a specialty to be able to curate your care around children in particular. So that was how it started. And then ultimately um, I ended up coming back to the U.S. because I started learning that the work that I was doing as a clinician had this glass ceiling over it because mm-hmm. of the system. and the lack of either, um, I would say the lack of potential, you know, cohesion around how do we get medicine? How do we get policies? How do we get structures and the personnel? And so I ended up wanting to come back to do my public health degree so I could start to know how to develop better programs, strengthen systems. 
And during that time, I actually was able to do more work in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Africa and lived there for a while and ultimately ended up being recruited to actually start a global health program um, so that we could train clinicians how to care in other countries. And that ended up being also global, which I like to say, which meant that we were also training physicians not only for how to care in other countries, but how to care for extremely marginalized um, populations here in the U.S., which included training on how to work with indigenous people and reservations, um, migrants who've recently crossed the border, and undocumented immigrants right here in New York. Can you tell us a little bit about that training, like training new doctors and also working with marginalized communities? Because at the base of that is trust, just um, because you're going into, um, say, indigenous cultures, even just like marginalized communities, and they have different cultures, different beliefs. So just being able to form relationships and getting individuals to trust you, like how... Could you talk a little bit about that process? Yeah, and it's all really globally informed. I think from the beginning, it's very interesting how we are taught care here in the U.S. We're taught it from a lens of health begins in a clinical encounter. And what I like to say is health doesn't begin in clinics, it begins in communities, right? The health and wellness is dictated by families and um, knowledge that's passed down. And, you know, certain people who they know are the people who to go to when you're sick. And those things are kind of our early entryway into health. And then in communities, what I like to say is what I learned when working abroad was the fact that the health and wellness was not dictated by what happened in a clinical encounter. It, It was dictated by how well you were connected to the midwife or the elders or the matriarch or um, whoever it was who was seen as the the person who really supported health. But also it was very much intertwined with what was happening in the community. So if there were issues around food, if there were issues around housing, if there were issues around a potential natural disaster, that all impacted it. And so we, so what was really important for me as a clinician is being able to make sure that we delivered health from a community context that was community led, community driven and community focused and integrated. And so that was how we started training our clinicians um, from that lens. What I learned, which was that when you go in as a clinician, you're not going in as an expert, you're going in first as an observer and a listener. And you're learning from what's existing, what are the pain points, what are the issues, and then clinical care will be fit in and molded to fit that rather than clinical care coming in as we're the experts, this is why this happens, and not having the context to actually be effective. So that, I think, has been the drumbeat of how I deliver care and also in the work that of creating systems and creating healthcare entities to support the care of black and brown people. Have you checked out our website? There you can find all of our episodes and show notes. You can even listen directly on the site and catch up on any previous episode you may have missed. You can read our bios and see what we're up to. Also, we made it even easier to contact us. 
Just fill out the form on our homepage and click submit. We invite you to recommend guests and topics we should feature. So what are you waiting for? Go check us out at distrustanddisparities.com. I'm so glad you touched on that because if you come in from a clinical standpoint, like say the person has diabetes, you're focused on getting their sugar down and that's it. But if you're looking at from a community uh, individual perspective, it's like this person, they don't know where they're going to get their next meal. Housing is a big concern. So they're not concerned about their sugar because it's like, you know, I'm not feeling those immediate side effects. So really going in, observing and, you know, just meeting people where they are, that's a big, big deal. So it's really good that you're um, teaching, you know, medical students, doctors, this technique because, you know, they don't think of it like that. You know, um, a lot of if you haven't had to face hardships or if you haven't worked with underserved communities, these things aren't at the top of your head. You're just like, you know, why aren't they taking care of their health? What is going on? But they have other issues that they're trying to address. And another question, just um, you kind of touched on it, but working with underserved communities, you get a firsthand look at some of the unique barriers that families are facing. Um, can you describe some of the unique challenges that you observed? Yeah. And so I think the first thing I always do is I help people shift language from underserved to under-resourced because I think mm-hmm. it makes a sense. It makes sense. Um, we're out there. We're trying to serve. Right. But the resources systemically that are provided to these neighborhoods um, are limited. And by design, honestly, um, when we think about um, the disproportionate mal- or the maldistribution, I should say, of, of resources here in America and, of course, across the globe for um, black and brown individuals. And so ultimately, I think the barriers are many. I, I use a, a model that actually emerged from uh, maternal mortality work that was being done in sub-Saharan Africa and across the globe. And it's called the three delays model. And so when I think about barriers, I always think about it in these three potential delays. So the first is the actual knowledge delay, which is identifying that I have a problem that needs to be assessed, that needs to be addressed and identifying and just being able to be knowledgeable, the health literacy that a lot of our families may not have, or they have, but it's not prioritized because of so many other, you know, competing issues in their lives, like you mentioned. And so it's identifying that this is a problem that actually can be solved, um, both from a preventative or a curative way. I think the second level of second delay is once I've identified I have a problem, right? So I am having an asthma attack. I identified I can't breathe and I probably need to go somewhere, right? Then the second thing is access. And so the access is both geographic, but also contributors to poor access. The transportation is there, the ability to have the money and financial ability to get into the care that you need, the ability to, like I said, geographic, to be able to get to distance-wise. We know that black and brown um Communities, 67% of those that have healthcare shortages exist, of areas that have healthcare shortages exist in black and predominantly black and brown communities. Um, and so that access piece is huge and it becomes really difficult for people to overcome that unless they have a number of different resources to help. 
The third delay is, let's say I have, I realize I'm having an asthma attack. I found somewhere, maybe I have to take two buses and something, but I was able to get there. Now, when I get there, the third is the quality barrier, right? And so either this type of services that are offered are not high quality, are um, laden with, you know, medical racism, um, discrimination, which we know a third of black and brown families have reported this um, discrimination and over half fear going to, to get treatment because of the fear of discrimination. And so what we do know is that then that barrier is I'm there, but this person doesn't believe me or this place doesn't have the treatments that I need or I am being um, told that what I'm experiencing is, you know, minimal and I should, you know, come back or it's in my head. And so those things tend to be the barriers that now from a clinical lens are things that we need to address with it, with interpersonally with healthcare individuals, as well as healthcare systems to ensure that they actually have the, they're actually delivering the care that we need. So you can see two of the barriers actually have nothing to do with the healthcare system at all. They're more Mm -hmm. around it. And then the healthcare system um, and what the barriers are there uh, is the that third barrier. Yeah, you bring up a good point, but it's like if you don't address those first two barriers, you really won't make really an impact on someone's health. So it's just, um, and this will be a good um, transition. Um, when you're we're working with the companies and organizations, um, and you're trying to change the system because eventually you founded your own organization. Did it get to a point where there was like a ceiling where um, you couldn't do as much as you wanted to, to tackle these disparities that helped that made you want to form your own organization? Could you just talk a little bit about that? If you get where I'm going, (laughs) I do get where you're going. So yeah. um, So I was doing the most, I like to say I was a car carrying member of team doing too much. Yes. Um, and, <laughs> and that as an academic, that's really easy to, to happen. Like when I finally transitioned into academia, I was teaching at a public health program. I was running two large research programs where we were delivering, you know, um, uh, programs to, to address social determinants of health. I was seeing my patients who were very psychosocially complex. And then I was also running a global health program. Right. And I was doing all that. And it's very clear to see now in hindsight how quickly I burnt out um, after just seven or eight years in that kind of work and ultimately ended up six months later getting um, a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. I like lost the ability to walk in like a week. And <laughs> then kind of, that we were trying to figure out why that was happening. And I found out I have multiple sclerosis, which is an autoimmune disorder. And what I learned from that, which I think is really important in terms of why moving into building um, my own space, was that James Baldwin has this quote that I remember very early after I finished, about a month after I got out of the hospital and I was on medical leave for the first time, not practicing in like over, I don't know how many years. And it said, the place in which I fit will not exist until I create it. And mm. It's a really powerful thing because I think many of us look at the healthcare system and we and we come in and we're like we have all these dreams on how we're going to shift it. And I think it's important to lead um, from the inside, definitely. 
But I also think that it needs to be balanced by people who are also leading from the outside. Um, and we can see both, we can see that in any justice movement, right? We can see people mm-hmm. who are inside the institutions trying to move things. But if it's not balanced with people who are from the outside, either trying to show different models, scale different models, um, create, you know, the, the voice from the streets, other things like that. If we're not seeing that, it can slow down the, the progress of the, of the movement. And so ultimately my decision was that this place I can't fit here and it's actually making me physically unhealthy. And so that was a decision that kind of was made for me. And what had been transpiring was the idea as I was delivering care, I was like, this is okay, but this is not the highest optimal level of how I can serve my people. And luckily there were two other pediatricians who felt the same way, who were also black females, my co-founders, Dr. Suzette and Dr. Nicole Brown. Who, t- who are twins, actually, <laughs> and they um, we collaborated to basically create Strong Children Wellness, which is the idea that, once again, 80% of health outcomes are dictated not by clinical work, but by the social issues that families face. And so our goal was to bring primary care and other health care into community organizations that provided the social, you know, um, supports. And to be able to integrate that to provide a better level of care that was closer to the people and reduce the access barriers and trust barriers. And so that was a really important um, transition. And so now doing that work, I do think that there, like you said, is a glass ceiling. Um, you know, one is policy, right? There's like certain <laughs> policies that now we realize as providers, we don't, we can't just sit as providers. We have to literally shake policymakers and get in front of them about this is this is how it looks here what your policy is doing this is what it's translating to and this is how it needs to be changed but also the other piece is how do we um scale the work that we're doing and so we can do that in a silo but using that global community lens that's the slow way to do it what we can do is also share some of the ways that we've been able to scale from up from funding And that was what allowed for me to be able to start my consulting company as well, which is Melanin Medicine, where I share with other BIPOC practice owners how to get the funding that they need to be able to scale so that we have more and more of us reaching more and more lives. Yes. Wow. So that's amazing. And before we go on to talking about your consulting business, I just wanted to talk about um, the Strong Children Wellness. And I know you said... You guys had the idea of working with um, the social service networks and those providers and um, the community-based organizations. When you presented the idea of um, bringing the um, primary care or the pediatric care to them, were they open or did it take some convincing? Or did you already have like a foot in the door with those um, networks? Kind of. Yeah, so luckily one of the really important things about this work was the fact that well, through our frustration, we had already been trying to create band-aids, right? So, and those band-aids were through community partnerships. And so luckily community partnering was kind of the pinnacle of the work that, that I would do in global health in particular. Like nothing moved unless we were partnering with community health workers or families or leaders in the community. 
And so that was just, that was just kind of the way to move things forward that the lens that I always thought about here. And so ultimately, before we actually started Strong Children Wellness, I was partnering with a community organization to be able to say, okay, my, I need to do this, let's say for that kid with asthma, but they also have a housing issue. I can't solve the housing issue, but you have some services that can solve the housing issue. How about can I like streamline a referral and make sure like that everything is and whatever you need from me to move things forward, a letter from the doctor to say, you know, all of those things. And so it was that symbiotic relationship that happened. However, the biggest issue around this was the fact that you can imagine through the referral process, you've probably seen this where if things aren't in a cohesive ecosystem, people fall through the cracks. And so that was the emphasis where we were like, how about we just bring the healthcare into your organization? And that was received so, you know, with such great excitement. But of course, the biggest issue is always for everything in this lovely capitalist America is money. Mm -hmm. Who's funding this? How are we going to do this? And that is kind of how we were able to say, okay, let's utilize things like grants and um, find philanthropy as an alternate way to potentially bring in additional dollars to support these innovative kind of partnerships. And that was what we used. We got our first grant of $125,000 through partnering with that community-based organization. And then over the next two years, we got about $750,000 in grants um, and contracts to be able to do that work. And that was kind of when we were doing this and saying, okay, we can, we can scale. We're still being able, we're still alive as a practice. That was when it was like, okay, we need to make sure more BIPOC practice owners know how to do this. And that, you know, that's been the thing, but it's been received so well because a lot of social service agencies feel like they are running through hoops to try and get their their families into care. And when a care provider shows up and is like, hey, can we partner to do that? This That's an amazing opportunity. And it's just about collaborating to figure out what are the funding, what is the way that we can get the money to make sure that this is sustainable. Uh, speaking of sustainability, so I know you got it through um, grants. How did you find those grants? Um, what is the process for those? Because a lot of people are interested in doing this work, but it's like, how do you you know, make the time and just figure out what is out there? Yeah. So initially, the best way to do this is when you find a partner who is a nonprofit, ideally, um, the best way is to solicit their past funders. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but past funders are usually the people who are most likely to give additional funding because they already have a relationship. And hopefully that nonprofit did a good thing with their money before. So they're like, OK, cool. Yeah, this is something new. That's the first thing. But ultimately, in terms of what I teach and just to share with your audience, they, you know, they want to learn more. Of course, they can just go to melaninandmedicine.co. But in terms of the big things that I think are really important things is being able, one, to look at certain databases and sites that are available, but also being able to look at your community and identify if you wanted to deliver services to a specific target population, what organization already has the buy-in and connection with that target population? And the grant, the grants are really 
going to be focused on bringing that money to that organization so that they can contract you to deliver the health services. So it's mm. almost like this pass through model where mm. the nonprofit, you bring a grant to the nonprofit. Nonprofit's like, yes, now we have a, a potential funding source to be able to fund bringing you and your services to our clientele. So they will apply for it. And then what we support a lot of times is being able to either support the organization to apply for it, the nonprofit, but also support the for-profit to put together what their service is, how much it costs, so that that can be inserted in that proposal and they can go to that funder and say, this is it, this is the service, this is how much it costs, this is what we need to do it. Can you please give us the money to do that? Yeah, and I think this is an amazing conversation to have, especially on our podcast, because we meet a um, talk to a lot of individuals that identify a health disparity or issue that they've gone through that they want to tackle, but they're not sure where to start, where to begin. So this is really great information. So I appreciate you coming on and sharing this. If you are enjoying this episode, you should consider buying us a coffee. Yes, a coffee. That small gesture will help us continue to create quality episodes and content. Click the Buy Me a Coffee link in the show notes or check out our website at distrustanddisparities.com. I know um, you opened up the Strong Children Wellness and you scaled. And I know you were telling us when we had our pre-interview that you were planning to open up a third location. Um, Where are you at in that process? Yeah, so we are in the infamous like hiring process. So everything, you know, it's always trying to find the right people. I think that's a different conversation, but I think what's really important when we're building is making sure you have a value system of like, what is it that you want to achieve and finding people who are so committed and so down for that value system. And sometimes when you have really innovative work that you're doing, it can be hard to find those people. Um, and, and so that is, so that is kind of our, what is the word? Our bottleneck right now. We're doing that and getting the, you know, getting the help to find those people quickly. But I think the other piece, um, is like we are on the track of potentially Q1 next year. So to be able to open that site, which is actually already ready. It's like ready, but it's just, we need the right people. We're not going to open anything without the right people. And so that is interesting. So we are based, based in Queens, New York right now. We are looking at different opportunities. We do have some contracted work that we do in Brooklyn with foster care agencies and residential treatment facilities take care of very psychosocially complex kids. And, and then our practices are in Queens right now. So in Flushing and Jamaica, Queens, for those of those listeners who know, New York and this Woodside would be the next one, but we are not limited to that, but that's where the opportunities are, are presenting themselves right now. And I'll say this is a, a lot scaling and open up a new facility and location. And you talked to our audience about your consulting business, Melanin and Medicine. What led you to also tackling consulting as well? Yeah, I told you I was on team doing too much, right? So, yes. <laughs> you know, I wasn't, yeah, I didn't have anything else to do, right? Um, so I think, I think it was just seeing so many people 
who looked like where we were Mm -hmm. and understanding how frustrating it is when you are, you know what you want to do, you know how you want to do it and you just don't have either the funding or pathway on how to do that. And that's always been somewhere where I really love to problem solve and just love to support. So it actually was an extension. Melanin Medicine actually started as work-life integration support for um, Black clinicians, Black physician women. And then we transitioned because we found out that many of us were not having, it wasn't that the work-life integration, it was that the place that we were working was not 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 suitable. And so we help people transition to entrepreneurship. But in that transition, the big barrier was the funding and being able to truly scale. And so now our work primarily focuses on those practice owners who are, you know, at, at, are, are working, doing well. They're seeing patients, but they know that instead of patient impact, they want to move beyond the population level impact. Mm-hmm. And to do that, it requires them to get out of their own silo and to partner to be able to become more profitable in partnership with these other organizations. So that was kind of the trajectory of melanin in medicine. And now, you know, we primarily work with BIPOC practice owners. The majority of our clientele are women um, by, you know, I, I don't exclude men, but as to, as to come. And, um, and it's been great because we've also been able to facilitate some really exciting partnerships with these practice owners and nonprofits and the amount of lives that these nonprofits care for. It just really is exciting to see, you know, now health services being made more accessible to these large populations of, of people. So I guess too, with Melanin and Medicine, we would want you to share with our audience, like what specific services do you provide to different um, practitioners, BIPOC people who are trying to turn into the entrepreneurial world, like you said, and reach those nonprofit population level goals? So for those who are just starting, the primary place that I point them to is our podcast, which is called Funding Your Healthcare Vision. Um, for people who are just starting, for people who already have the practices and are kind of like, oh, this needs to grow. What is happening? Um, we do, we do one of two things. We provide, we're a consulting agency, so not a coaching company. So our work is providing actual like assets and doing things either with you or doing things for you. And so what that looks like is we are going to one, identify who, what is the services that you, what are the services that your practice can really bring to a partner organization to find the right partner organizations in your locality that are going to work with you. Three, create all of the assets like the introduction emails, the elevator pitches so that you can co- successfully connect with them and get calls with them. And then four, help you run through the actual like introduction process and the discovery calls and getting all of the information that you need. And then five, actually being able to do the proposals. Once you have that information, we will write proposals for you to get contracts with those organizations or um, source grants for you to present as funding sources for that organization to contract you. Um, and then we just support you through that process. Like once the money's there of like, you know, putting everything on paper. So it's a really great process. Um, 
we do it. We do. We work with people for three to six months, um, and then some people are new and want to just work with us all the time. But it's um, it's meaningful work. I'm very, very passionate about it. Yeah. When working with, um, I would say, healthcare providers or even just um, people who are interested in social justice, just going from the switch from being a clinician to an entrepreneur. It's a different like mindset that you have to have. Like you want to help people, but like you said, how do I go from helping individuals to helping communities and just being able to partner and kind of like getting out my little bubble? So could you talk about some of the, the biggest obstacles that may providers may face when you're working with them and how you help them overcome some of these challenges? Yeah, the biggest mistakes are um, I actually do a master class on this every month. The biggest mistakes often are positioning. Um, a lot of practice owners are thinking really small, right? They think mm-hmm. I'm a practice owner and I'm um, just help these patients, but they don't see how their practice has the ability to just their expertise and even the people that they have have the ability to create like very, very big impact. And so well, the first thing that we do is they think primarily about their clinical resource, their clinical services, and we help them think about, you can train staff. You can, for our mental health practices, you can support staff of these organizations. Um, you can do community health education with the, with the clientele and the ex, with the therapist or the clinicians that you have because we serve primary care and mental health. Um, you can provide health education for the communities that those organizations serve. You can help support that organization as a consultant to develop, you know, a specialty. If you're a pediatrician, they want to serve more child help, provide more child health services. You can help them as a consultant to do that. So there is this continuum of support that exists outside of just providing clinical care. Once again, that extends to, I think, the social determinants where I'm always thinking about clinical care is an entryway, but it is not the main impact. And so I like to say, yes, you can deliver clinical care to a lot more people through these partnerships, but that's only the tip of the iceberg. And so helping people to start to see, oh, yeah, I have this in my tool belt and this in my tool belt. I also have this expertise that these organizations would love to have access to. So just unlocking um, their potential and just, you know, a different way of thinking and like you have all these skills. So you don't just have to focus on like those clinical skills. Let's focus on other skills. So yeah, that is amazing. You've already sort of touched on it because of explaining how wonderful it is to see your work and to see the people that you have worked with through melanin medicine. But can you share some of the success stories from some of the individuals that you've been able to help partner with different nonprofits? Yeah, I mean, so a few success stories. We have one where we had an OBGYN and she's been able to get hundreds of thousands in grants and contracts to be able to help support changing how hospitals and um, community health centers actually work together to make birthing more, to make birthing safe for Black women um, and really being able to not just focus on just doing that, right, providing that service, but changing the system around how to do that. We had another um, client who is the leader of the only black woman led um, therapy office in Rochester, New York, and helping her secure grants to be able to now work with youth at 
other organizations and being able to support community groups that support the mental health and wellness of groups that allows for these youth not to have to just wait until there's a, a waiting list of, you know, until they can get into this site, but being able to now increase the accessibility of those services through these other organizations. Um, one of our really nice clients, she, after just working 30 days together, we were able to get her this amazing grant where she was able to focus, she wanted to focus on um, ADHD and supporting children. She's a pediatrician and we were able to get her, help her get a grant that now allow for her to connect with 21 schools in Oklahoma so that mm. then they were able to train the teachers and the, you know, staff leadership to be able to identify what are the issues, what are those things that are, you know, important for identifying ADHD and navigating it in schools. And so it really depends. I always say we lead by the clinician and what the what their vision, what impact is, and then we work backwards to try and figure out, okay, what's the best route to actually achieve that vision. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> that is. Especially because, yeah, you're helping people see beyond their bubble, their their smaller world, because you're understanding, especially given your history, especially your global history, your global lens, you're able to see, okay, you can take this and then affect so much change across so many populations, which is really what we need. And like you said, working some people still within the system, but especially people like yourself working outside of the system and really affecting that change. Totally, totally. You got it. Exactly. Yes. And could you tell our audience um, the best way to contact you? Um, We'll also have this information in our show notes, but we want to hear it from you. (laughs) Yeah. So I would say my main stopping grounds is LinkedIn. Um, That is where I usually end up in the morning writing things that come to my head. Um, and so you can just find me Omolara Thomas Uemedimo. I know there's a lot of letters there, but I'm sure that'll be in the show notes. But also melaninandmedicine.co is our main site for our consulting. And then our practice, it's strongchildrenwellness.com. Yes. And we appreciate you coming on the show and being a guest. I feel like we just touched the surface with all the amazing and wonderful things that you are doing. So we are excited. We hope to be able to check in with you in the future. And I know our audience will learn a lot and have a lot of things to take from this episode. And tell us, do you have a a masterclass coming up? I will actually. It is November 16th. November 16th. Okay. Um, Mark that on your calendar. We are excited to learn more. And thank you again for coming on the show. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to suggest a topic we should discuss or share your own personal story, email us at distrustanddisparities at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate, review, and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Distrust and Disparities and on Twitter at Distrust Pod. Thank you.